This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political. In this episode on the genealogies of livability, I welcome two guests, Maros and Nina. My name is Markus Kipp. Today we're going to talk about what livability is and how it relates to the emergence of neoliberal urbanism. Maros and Nina will introduce us to Jan Gehl and his rise to prominence as the premier advocate of livability, and that will also lead us to consider the origins of his work in the Danish welfare state of the 1960s and the research that his partner Ingrid Gehl has conducted then. You will also... Uh, Maros and Nina will also elucidate how, over the past decade, Gale's prominence has superseded Richard Florida and his idea of the creative city. And finally, we shall also reflect on how livability relates to this particular societal moment that is marked by COVID-19 and the current protests and uprisings in the U.S., which have put the relationship between race and space visibly on the agenda. So to begin. Um, Please let our listeners know who you are, where you're based, and what you usually work on. My name is Nina Stena Jansen, and um, I finished the Urban Studies program at Estonian Academy of Arts in 2018. And since then, I've been a PhD student under Marosch, um, focusing on participatory um, architectural models from the late 1960s and looking at them from this uh, cybernetic perspective. Okay, hi everyone, and thanks for inviting me here. And my name is Maros Trivi. I am Associate Professor in Urban Studies at the Estonian Academy of Arts in Tallinn. Uh, I work at the intersections of architectural history and urban geography. Uh, my work is focused on genealogies of post-war urbanism in the West and in, in the East. Uh, and I think the, uh, the key point is that I understand urbanism in, in my work as a professional field and urbanist as uh, as an as an expert community. And so I'm in, I'm interested in history of urbanism in in this sense, and uh, and uh, the stuff we are going to talk about today is uh, is one strand within this uh, uh, within this uh, uh, interest of mine. Let's begin by hearing from you a bit about the idea of livability. What exactly is it? Livability is uh, is this idea that that there is a category called quality of life. That this category is measurable and that it applies not only to individuals but also to cities. And therefore, cities can be ranked according to their quality of life. And now there are now many such lists of cities. And so the most influential ones are, for example, uh, global livability ranking by The Economist or quality of life survey by, uh, by Monocle. Uh, at the same time, livability is, is a loose and transnational tendency or movement by urban designers and urban planners to make cities more livable. Uh, such as, for example, the new urbanism movement that take on suburbanization, 
And in Europe, of course, Jan Gell, about whom uh, I think we will uh, we will talk more today. And uh, all, like to put it very simply, all these designers and planners are devoted to the teaching of Jane Jacobs, uh, urbanists such as Jane Jacobs or William White. Uh, and in in the U.S. Uh, uh, livability movement closely overlaps with the so-called placemaking movement. Uh, and in the US, it's, it's, it's less popular than, than, for example, in, in Scandinavia. What's uh, very important, or, or how, we, uh, um, how we analyze it, is by emphasizing link uh, links between this idea of livability or, or design idea, let's say, and urban entrepreneurialism, and, and especially the, the notion of urban competitiveness. Uh, uh, so, for example, in the in the U.S., one important uh, um, event in in the genealogy is uh, so-called livability agenda which was introduced in 1999 by Al Gore, who was uh, then vice president during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. And then in this livability agenda, uh, Al Gore uh, uh, proposes uh, a kind of urbanism focused on preserving green spaces, easing traffic congestion, and fostering community engagement. Uh, uh, but but what's very important is uh, and 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 this is this is then consistent with with a kind of uh, uh, Clintonian approach to to politics is that these these values are not only intrinsic values but they are also instruments for enhancing uh, urban competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, in Europe uh, uh, at the same time, so in two thousand in two thousand. Uh, uh, um, this Jan Dell's office is open, so they are called Jan Dell Architects, right? And then the office is established in 2000 uh, as a partnership between Jan Dell himself and his former student. Um, so, so, so I think this uh, this moment uh, around 2000 is 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 an important moment for the genealogy of of urban livability and and i um i situated at the intersection of uh, of uh, changes within the um urban design discipline on the one hand and on the other hand transformation uh, that are familiar to critical urban geographers uh, this is of course the turn to urban entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism but also, but also a certain kind of uh, uh, overlaps, uh, but also uh, frictions uh, uh, with uh, the the creative cities agenda. So you already introduced um, Jan Gehl. Could you please uh, give us um, some introduction to this person and uh, architectural partners and? What mm -hmm. is it that they propose, and how does it relate to this livability agenda? 
Jan Gehl, like on an international scale, has become sort of uh, synonymous with Copenhagen as a city. And we, when we were like researching for this uh, presentation in Stockholm, we found that like many American outlets thought that Jan Gehl had designed this like really long pedestrian street that runs through Copenhagen, central Copenhagen, which is called Stroll. Um, but in fact, it was like initiated in the in the beginning of the 60s by a, <clears throat> a conservative um, member of the city government. But yeah, that that uh, that Jan Gill has really quite successfully used the city of Copenhagen without having done any design intervention there, as um, as sort of his example of how he how he approaches this uh, the urban scale. So I will just add that uh, that Jan Gell's been around for more than for almost fifty years. So, so the first research they did was in uh, was in nineteen sixties, late nineteen sixties, and the research focused on how people behave in in public spaces. And he published, I think, his first book was called uh, uh, was called. Um, Life between buildings. So already the title of the book puts emphasis on space between buildings, not in the buildings. And uh, and their research was uh, very much op- based on observing how people move and what kind of acti- activities they do at different times of day different um, let's say uh, uh, different places in in cities uh, and and so Copenhagen was was there uh, was one of their laboratories as as as, uh, as Nina mentioned but they also did research in uh, in Italy where uh, they took small Italian towns as a again as a kind of uh, model for authentic urbanism, which then they tried to, they argued, uh, needs to be introduced also in uh, in the Nordic context. And I would say that their research is, is a kind, or it's informed by kind of environmental behaviorism in which uh, in which, in the end, there are that there are universal rules for good versus bad urban design. So they often present their findings as as checklists, uh, as you know, five or ten bullet points that cities have to or municipalities have to follow in order to make their uh, cities more livable. Or as uh, as uh, his uh, most recent book is called "Made Remade Cities for People," yeah. uh, and I think it's very important to emphasize that that uh, there is a behind this kind of claim uh, for universal uh, uh, universal urban design. I think there's, there's a kind of bias against uh, against modernist uh, welfare urbanism. 
So, and, and this is, I think here in particular, and maybe Nina can then add a couple, couple of thoughts on this. I think it's quite important that, that in, in, in the 60s, Jan Dell was among the first one who, who, uh, who seen, uh, you know, the, the kind of welfare urbanism focused on, 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 on public housing as, uh, as alienating and it's not providing uh, quality spaces and quality public spaces for people. So, so, so I think that's the kind of political and historical context to their research. And I would also say that what I think is it's important um, is that for I think for almost three decades, their research was not really influential in uh, among uh, uh, among planners, uh, among uh, or in the municipal, you know, at the kind of municipal level planning. Uh, so, so it was it was rather like they were rather marginal, uh, at least globally, and but I think also in in. Uh, the Nordic context, and it was only in two, in around two thousands, after the after the as, as I already said after the office was established in in two thousand, that they became uh, influential, and I and I think that this is what we uh, what we argue is that it's not that they are influenced because they have great ideas, but it's because there is a certain momentum for these ideas. And this momentum is, this momentum has to do not so much with the ideas of urban designers, but they have to do with, uh, with urban restructuring, with, uh, you know, refocusing um, the priorities of, of uh, municipalities on, uh, on city center regeneration uh, and has to do with the processes such as urban financialization. So, Maros, you spoke about livability as a set of criteria or bullet points. What are they? Um, is it possible to give us a brief overview of them? Yes. Um, so, the livability, like bullet points, um, they're kind of different from the livability scale that rates cities around the around Europe and in terms of how um, good they are uh, to live in. And these um, 12 quality criteria from the Gill Institute, they are more related to um, a specific uh, public space and um, is presented as this like print out worksheet that you could put on a clipboard and bring with you uh, when you assess a space. And uh, these 12 points are structured around three main themes, which are protection, comfort, and enjoyment. And these um, three themes can be rated from a happy to neutral or sad face. Um, and if we look at the specificities, then in protection, you have protection against traffic and accidents uh, in the public space, protection against harm by others, so if the public space is perceived to be safe in both day and night, you have protection against unpleasant sensory experiences such as like noises and pollution. 
In comfort, we have options for mobility. Is the space accessible? We have options to stand and linger. Um, you have options for sitting, options for seeing, options for talking and listening, options for play, exercise, and activities. And then in enjoyment, we have the scale. So it's a public space um, made at a human scale. Um, opportunities to enjoy the positive aspects of climate, such as is the space, is there uh, places in shadow? Um, and then finally, the experience of aesthetic qualities and po positive sensory experiences, such as is the space uh, beautifully made. I think it's interesting how these options, um, in terms of like we, we talked about needs earlier in the in the early work from the 60s, and so all of these like options um, for the public space is here based on these like needs that the, the Gales identified in the in the 60s, um, such as the need for socializing and the needs for lingering. You see the same kind of um, ways in of using the space as as these like uh, studies from um, the Italian plazas. Maybe you can give us a, a few examples of where these ideas have been implemented. So I think that this is very important. They are not urban designers, but consultants. They advise or recommend to municipalities what they should do. And then, uh, then municipalities would hire, uh, would hire architects or urban designers to actually implement the change. So, so one, of, one of the... Uh, Uh, one of one of their uh, like first major project was uh, when they consulted the New York City, uh, and they were commissioned to uh, rethink uh, Times Square. This was in 2009. And of course, they proposed to close it off to car traffic, and this was then uh, implemented in 2016 by uh, by Norwegian office. Snoheta. But they, they also consult to cities from ranging from Moscow to Helsinki to, to Sao Paulo. Mm. Uh, and they've been also involved in in a rather controversial uh, uh, context, such as revitalizing uh, favelas, for example, mm. in, uh, in South America. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think there it's very uh, obvious that this shift from sort of uh, the home that Ingrid Gate focuses on um, to infrastructure, like these favelas in, for instance, Buenos Aires, where the municipal, municipality wants to wants them to focus on like um, making the streets proper and um, putting water in, but not focusing on, on the home as such. Jan Gehl is strongly associated with the brand of Copenhagen. Uh, could you elaborate on what this brand or this image of Copenhagen is about and how that relates to Jan Gehl? Mm, yeah, so I think it, it coincides quite a lot with the with these like uh, UN measuring, measurements of uh, happiness that the, that the Nordic welfare states have ranked quite high in. And at sort of the same time, lifestyle magazines such as Monocle and started to focus on Copenhagen as as a city that has all these qualities that make it um, rather livable. And I think this livability is also quite um, 
associated with sort of the a daily life rather than something spectacular or, or as a destination that has tourist attractions, but rather as a place that attracts um, international attention because of its um, high quality in, in daily life, um, well-functioning welfare state and, and such. Um, so I think that, that the, the Gale office has tapped into this quite successfully uh, by focusing on like how to get from A to B um, quickly and uh, enjoyable on your bike um, and where to enjoy your coffee in the sun and these kind of things that also sort of translates into what we see now with offices such as Kobe. Um They just published a, a book called The Urban Living Room. So like focusing on on the outside as an extension of your home. Um, yeah. I think this is also where where there you know the, these ideas of uh, of uh, a public space that is uh, friendly for pedestrians mm. uh, that there is a lot of bike lanes there is a vibrant public space you know that invites people to uh, drink cappuccino and to do uh, to do sport that, that that you know all these values and all, all these qualities are uh, somehow. Uh, captured in, in, in the image of, 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 of Copenhagen. So I think that's also the connection between uh, Jan Dell and, uh, and, and the brand of, of Copenhagen. Because as, uh, as Nina already mentioned, uh, Jan Dell is not himself responsible or the office is not, uh, is not itself responsible for Copenhagen being uh, pedestrian friendly and having a lot of bike lanes. In 2018, uh, a former uh, a partner in, in the office was uh, became the mayor of Copenhagen, right? So there is now the, this is also an interesting uh, kind of momentum. All of this, what you just said, uh, seems to suggest that there is a, a very positive uh, reference to the welfare state making such lively uh, urban space possible um, and it looks like this is something that Jan Gehl's work uh, seems to propose uh, a welfare mm -hmm. a, a good welfare system Uh, however, earlier on, you said that uh, basically the rise of Jan Gehl and his office is based mm -hmm. on a city's reorientation of its priorities from welfare housing programs sure. uh, to a new kind of paradigm. So mm -hmm. could you elaborate a little bit on how this uh, reorientation away from the welfare system in mm -hmm. Denmark and in Copenhagen relates to Jan Gehl's prominence? Mm. One way how I like to approach it is by making a distinction between welfare and well-being. And I think uh, what... Uh, Uh, and I think that uh, the kind of uh, urbanism that that Jan Dell is, is is associated with, and then we just discussed, I would call it, or I would rather associate it with well-being, not with welfare. And I think the irony is that, uh, like, like yeah, for example, Jan Dell has always been very critical of. Um, 
of welfare housing or welfare or urbanism that that we associated with 1960s and 70s in in Scandinavia, which is very much focused on on uh, large scale uh, housing programs uh, and and public housing. And so he and he's all he's been always describing or uh, criticizing uh, uh, his public housing environments as alienating. You know, basically describing. Uh, Welfare urbanism as 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 a kind of urbanism that killed the city, and and so in a way his project or his lifetime project is to provide kind of counter model to welfare urbanism, and and I understand that from let's say from like from U.S. perspective. Uh, this might this may be appears as progressive, uh, and in and in in indeed it is to a certain extent. But I think the irony is that it is precisely progressive, or it's precisely that you know issues such as such as pedestrianization, bike lane provision, that they can become laid such an important issue precisely because there is a legacy of of welfare urbanism but there is a legacy of of uh, public housing programs which to a certain extent have been eroded by uh, by by neoliberal urbanism but that nonetheless uh, you know still play a rather important role in in uh, in Scandinavia, uh, so so I think it's it's not you know it's not black and white. It's not about saying that uh, that livable urbanism is is bad, but also it's not enough to just you know provide this as the most important program for making cities for people. Because what what I see as as most problematic in this agenda is that it's precisely um, that it leaves the housing question and the question of what happens outside of public spaces, so to speak, that it leaves these questions out of the equation. You argued that Jan Gehle superseded Richard Florida's idea or proposal of the creative class. Could you elaborate a bit on this? Okay, so maybe before that, I just I just want to because it's now now it really might might seem uh, to uh, to people who listen to this that this is that we are kind of that our main aim is just to take on Jan Gehle, but rather. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think rather what's our interest in this, and and other people with with whom we 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 uh, collaborated on this research, uh, such as Leonard Ma, with whom uh, we wrote an essay in every review on this, is is not is rather we we approach Jan Gell as somebody who is um, who is symptomatic of uh, certain change. Within uh, urbanism and within uh, uh, within urban within urban policies, 
right? And and I think then the link uh, uh, with Richard Florida is that uh, so I'm not sure I need to introduce Richard Florida, uh, who you know who is uh, associated with the, the notion of the creative class and the importance of of uh, creative classes for remaking uh, remaking cities. And so Richard Florida's argument turns on the economic value of the creative class and the kinds of urban culture that is associated less with uh, uh, iconic architecture or uh, high culture but rather with the value of of everyday cultures and basically the idea the idea of Richard Foda is that anyone is potentially creative uh, but if you look at what has happened to or if you look at the history of of this argument, which often goes under the name of the creative city, is so. So, th so there's a crisis of the argument after 2008, and especially uh, 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 in the past, I would say four or five years. So in 2017, Florida published the new urban crisis, and in that book. It's it's a kind of mea culpa. So there, so uh, where he somehow crashed, like the mess. The message is ambiguous, but essentially, it seems that it seems that he questions the the entire argument of the creative city, right? Uh, and and that that. It seems that he recognized, uh, to a certain extent, that he has recognized uh, the criticism that uh, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of of urban geographers and political scientists and urbanists have uh, have provided. And, and and so two points here. So one is that so so it seems that live up that this livability it seems as a kind of soft continuation of the like kind of soft extension of the creative city, where the claim is that the, you know, like creative city, the, the idea of creative class might still appear elitist because uh, you know there are people who are creative, and then there is this, there are other classes, such as you know the service class that Florida mentions, but then he never really uh, elaborates. Uh, on that, so so so, so, so the creative city is, you know, you can say it's implicitly unequal, while uh, the what I think livable city is is somehow there's an implicit populism in it, in, a, in and and I, I mean populism in in a, in a sense of like like kind of bad populism. Uh, that it appears that it's equal, but actually it's not. And uh, but precisely because it seems that it's more democratic than the creative city, I think that's why it has gained traction 
among uh, municipal leaders and mayors across the world. Because the livable city, it appears a kind of no-nonsense uh, model that it appears that it somehow uh, it's democratic, but at the same time it sustains belief in, uh, or it, it provides a kind of, uh, or, or there's an idea behind it that if we made our cities, if we made our cities more livable, then they will also become more competitive. So, so, so you know, so, so the kind of underlined, um, so, the, so the, you know, the underlined uh, uh, premise is the same as the one of of creative cities, right? That the point of remaking cities to, or to make cities more creative is to increase urban competitiveness. And I think the same premise underlines the livable city. While on the surface, it actually appears much more soft, much more humanistic. Personally, I would say that uh, the ideal of pedestrianization, of more bike lanes, of uh, uh, well-crafted uh, public squares sound mm -hmm. like a good idea. Would you say that a more welfare-oriented society, a democratic socialist society, could actually gain something from Jan Gehl's ideas as well, or, or implement his ideas? Would, that, would they be compatible? My immediate response was just yes, yes, uh, sure. But I think it's, it's also about like how the, in which context that, it, that, it, that it's operating. And I think that's also why we find this uh, sort of shift from uh, the book that Ingrid Gehl wrote in the um, late 60s until now. Um, where, and, and how Yen is, is uh, still referring back to those ideas uh, that, was, that were very much uh, created in sort of the heyday of the Danish welfare state. Um, but if the ideas are still the same, but they're now just functioning or being used in a, in a very different political setting that doesn't favor so much uh, social housing or housing at all, but rather it focuses on on the public space and that translates into um, I mean offices um, that are like invited for competition to design um, a new infrastructure space or like a new station and that they also focus on this like public urban living rooms. So it just I, yeah. I don't know it influences the, mm. the conversation quite a lot. And so I don't think it's so much about like whether the socialist um, government would favor these ideas or not. Like, I mean, at the moment we have a very socialist government in, in Denmark, um, but that doesn't really seem to. Yeah, I would just add that. Um, no, I, I, I completely agree. I would just add that uh, uh, maybe to, a little bit to explain our approach, because our aim is, is absolutely not to reject these ideas. It's not about that. Our aim is rather to understand why and how uh, the idea of livable urbanism resonates with, with neoliberal urban change. Hmm. So, 
So I would say that uh, at least my approach is is rather genealogical. So, I, so what I'm interested in how uh, you know certain ideas gain traction in in particular historical moment. So for example, in 2000, why or, or today after the tri- after the 2008 crisis, why there is such a, why there is such interest in the idea of livability. And then the, why there is much less interest, uh, for example, in um, rethinking public housing, which which of course depends on the context. So, uh, as as Marcus, I'm sure you know, like for example, the case of Berlin is maybe exceptional to the extent that there is indeed uh, then there is indeed uh, debate and there is indeed like. Uh, multi-layered movement for decommodifying uh, housing, but but I would say that uh, in in other contexts, for example, I, I'm now teaching in a, in a school of architecture. Uh, so if I uh, reflect on on say what students, what kind of uh, themes and topics students are interested in in uh, in Estonia where I'm based now it's very much uh, precisely a quality public space and there's very li- little interest in uh, in questioning or challenging uh, um, the you know the reality of of housing commodification not to uh, mention housing financialization which I I think, are key challenges that uh, uh, that urbanists have to address uh, today. So I just wanted to uh, uh, return to Richard Florida's argument in his most recent book that I mentioned before, the New Urban Crisis, uh, in which Florida himself, and I think this is this is the the, the link we made uh, between uh, livability and and. Uh, social democracy is that Florida himself now in that book argues that it is necessary to provide certain percentage of affordable housing, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have seen, uh, you know, how creative uh, cities agenda added massively to gentrification, right? So, so, So Florida argues that if we want to, uh, you know, uh, if we want to save creative cities, uh, we need to provide uh, affordable housing, right? So, and and I think it's it seems to me that this the agenda of uh, of providing you know like a limited amount of affordable housing is is becoming accepted even within a. Contexts that are otherwise rather neoliberal friendly, but I think then uh, I think it's not enough to just talk about affordable housing. Of course, it's as a you know as a kind of a short-term tactics. It's a great thing, but I or I wonder if uh, talking only about affordable housing might not then in the long run also prevent us from actually questioning and challenging the reality of 
of housing commodification and financialization as such. So I think we need to push this further and really, uh, uh, I'm very much interested in, you know, what's going on in in Berlin uh, with not only with the uh, with the rent uh, rent cap, but also you know with these initiatives such as uh, such as uh, anti deutsche the anti deutsche Wohnen movement uh, so on. So I think that's it's 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 really interesting uh, uh, momentum now where I think uh, where where I think urbanists uh, who so we've been speaking about the kind of urban design segment of 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 urbanism. So I think there is really need for for that for the design segment of urbanism to uh, uh, to you know start collaborate with uh, with social uh, with social and housing movements in cities such as Berlin, but also of course in across the world. Yeah, I, I think we. We will have a podcast also on the rent freeze here in Berlin uh, sometime soon. Um, I'd, I'd just like to move to another topic about your uh, current uh, research on uh, Ingrid Gehl's uh, work. Um, Ingrid Gehl, the partner, uh, wife of, of Jan Gehl. And you, uh, Nina, I focus on her notion of the boom milieu, the living environment. Could you please present her, her key ideas to us and how, how they relate to, to Jan Gehl's notion of livability? So, yeah, as I said before, Jan uh, often mentions this, um, this influence in his life um, as, the way, as like the way that he sort of started to focus on people rather than buildings when he was a young architect. Um, and as Maraj mentioned, uh, Ingrid and, and Jan traveled to Italy together and, um, and observed uh, city life in, in small cities and, um, and came up with this idea that by observing people, you could sort of see what they wanted because they would sit in, on a bench a certain way or they would stand in the shadow or they would look at other people to have their need for contact uh, sort of covered and, and these sort of things. Um, and so Boot Milieu is, um, is a report that was published by the Danish Housing Research Institute um, in 1972, I think. Um, and so it was sort of um, a way to or the intention with the report was to formulate a set of, of claims about what a living environment in the welfare state would look like. So in a way, um, securing not only physical needs of a space, of a shelter, but also of a, a sort of a psychologically um, agreeing environment. Um, and so the, the, the title Boat Milieu refers to this a synthesis of, of milieu, which is the physical environment, and then bo, with, which means uh, to live, but a social kind of process of, of dwelling. And um, in the book, um, which is not in, intended to be sort of a, a, a way for architects to uh, check off bullet points, as, as we mentioned that some of 
mm. of uh, Jan, Jan's work is, but it's more like a kind of a discussion of what these needs might be and how these needs might differ in terms of age groups and um, living situation or like how big your family is and these kind of things. Um, and there are lists of spatial dimensions that have to be met, components of space which are quite physical, uh, planet and layout of a space, but also like sensory stimuli. And um, with a background in, in psychology, Ingrid Gehl um, focuses a lot on this like dynamic um, process of living. So the way that we see, we see this influence of psychology and especially behavioral uh, psychology, in, uh, which, are, which is presented by Abraham Maslow's behavioristic um, pyramid of needs. Um, we see that all of these like variables of how a person um, moves, not only within its own space, but also in the, in the immediate surroundings, uh, how that is sort of uh, presents this interplay of, uh, yeah, components. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the report is, is, is rather like scientifically, um, um, executed um, and I think it's it's very fascinating in the way that it's both um, it's this moment where where it's both like kind of modernistic in a way in how it approaches its subject but also kind of very critical of it um, and when we hear Jan Gate later talk about how he how like Le Corbusier is his biggest enemy or like it's um it's quite peculiar to see this shift or, yeah, as, as Maoj also talked about, like this approach to the welfare state, both like being very situated mm. in it, but also like being very critical of it or what it produces. I'll just add uh, uh, one, um, one point here on the, on the notion or rather uh, yeah, on the notion of, of living environment uh, which, which I think uh, really provides, and this, this is also where um, my own interest lies, uh, I think this notion provides also uh, an, an interesting entry into kind of transnational history of urbanism. And uh, so I did, I did uh, research on, on Czechoslovakia, where exactly at the same time when, uh, when Ingrid Dell uh, Indrid Dale's book was published in 90, this was 1971. So just a few years before, uh, um, uh, I, I did research on late 60s uh, discussions and projects in, in Czechoslovakia and in very different context of, uh, of state socialism, uh, architects and, and, and uh, policymaker, urban policymakers Used exactly the same, uh, used exactly the same uh, conceptual lens through which to rethink uh, modernist, uh, modernist uh, urbanism. And uh, so the concept of living environment provided them with a kind of critical lens through which to explore alternatives to the Fordist industrial model. Not only in in uh, let's say uh, social democratic uh, 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 Scandinavia, sorry for uh, simplifying, but also in the East Europe in East European state socialism, 
but also in the Western uh, in the Western context. So like uh, the the term living environment very much resonated also with uh, uh, in in discussions in the US and in the UK in in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s. So just to give you one example, there was a very controversial conference, the famous Aspen Design Conference in 1970, and the, the main theme was Environment by Design. It was chaired by Rainer Banham. And, and really the debate turned on on the kind of um, kind of liberal uh, hum- like kind of implicit liberal human uh, kind of humanism of of the idea of living in the environment, but also how it obscured certain uh, um, uh, you know uh, in power inequalities. Uh, so, so I think it's really interesting how the the notion of living environment, which indeed provides a kind of genealogy to the livability discussion is is really a kind of transnational. Uh, it's really a transnational concept that is used uh, in in very different political contexts, and it has it has quite different meanings in uh, in in uh, in uh, in these contexts. But nonetheless, there is there is a kind of there is a kind of momentum around the idea of of living the environment in. Uh, uh, early late 60s, early 70s, in different parts of the world. So, how how did uh, Ingrid's work uh, develop afterwards? After Boat Milieu, um, that was like the last thing that she did. Uh, she worked as a mm. consultant in the Danish Housing Research Institute, but um, after a while, she became a, a clinical psychologist and. Um, yeah, moved into the background, so to speak. So the article that Marj and I are working on, um, it, sort of the working title is uh, from from Beaumilieu to Bureau, which is uh, the Danish word for city space, um, because that's like the the space that that uh, Jan Gale has favored, maybe over this Beaumilieu. Instead of the, the urban living room, and what seems to be happening when we move from Bomilieu to Burum uh, is this upscaling of needs, or like when the uh, when the when the when the book so when we move from from the home to the urban sphere, the the scale changes and also the needs sort of simplify. So the needs that were so diverse in, in Ingrid's uh, work and how she describes them, um, they are sort of, they, a lot of them are sort of lost and um, what is left is this, yeah, I don't know, very simple kind of behavior around the bench or how to, yeah, how to sit on a bench or these kind of things. Could you elaborate a bit on what kind of, perspective on needs has been lost? I mean, what kind of mm. needs have been fallen out of view? Um, I think um, I think find it quite interesting that th- the way that uh, Ingrid sort of looks at how children's needs are different from maybe adults, um, that whole thing is, is, I think, lost in that the person that is observed in the inner city is usually the consumer 
Um, I think this pedestrian person is very different from the people that live around the housing estate. Um, and the pedestrian doesn't have as many facets to its behavior as perhaps the elderly um, pensioner isolated in her flat. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I just, I just add that I think you mentioned pedestrian, and mm. I think uh, what I'm interested in is also to explore the this uh, like who like who is this pedestrian? So what, for example, you know, in terms of class, gender, mm. or ethnicity, and race, and how uh, you know how is this pedestrian uh, uh, constructed in the in the contemporary and and the, in in contemporary projects in contemporary urbanism, so I think it's a uh, uh, you know I think our interest or my interest at least it's somewhere between a kind of critical neo-Marxist approaches to to uh, uh, um, urbanization and the kind of Foucauldian interest in um, in in subjectification. Uh, and and I think, you know, so so I think the pedestrian is 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 a particular subject that has changed over time. Uh, and so so I think if we return to you know your your original idea about livability, I think part of that is is also the shift, let's say, from from you know. From the citizen to to the pedestrian as uh, as the main agent of of urban change, and even if this is not true in reality, and of course you know like critics uh, always point out how you know we still need more uh, like we need we need more pedestrian space uh, and, and so on and so forth, which is indeed true, but I think there is a like the fact that the pedestrian has uh, emerged as a kind of uncontested ideal for progressive urbanism is in itself something that uh, I find problematic because because this pedestrian has like no class, no gender. But also because it has replaced uh, other forms of, uh, or like other more politicized forms of uh, urban subjectivity. The perception and the use of public space has been heavily influenced in this moment of the pandemic. We confront public space in very new ways, are to behave in different ways, speaking about physical distancing, uh, flows and encounters uh, are becoming subject to new forms of formal regulation in public spaces. In certain respects, public space becomes framed as unsafe, maybe even uh, as we are supposed to stay at home. Uh, at the same time, some of the livability Ideas like bike lanes become implemented overnight in cities like Berlin, Brussels, and others. Mm -hmm. So clearly this moment has implications um, 
for the livability approach uh, and how advoc their advocates um, see public space. So I wonder, how does this COVID-19 moment then affect the livability discourse and what kind of reactions or adaptations have you seen? So, like, mm -hmm. I think, first of all, I was thinking that that this livability and, and the corona were kind of, like, I was imagining how it was clashing as, as there was, like, none of these, like, activities of standing and lingering and hearing and seeing and enjoying the shadow could be could be done under the lockdown here in Paris. But then um, it's been quite interesting to see how, like, I mean, here in the spring, there's been the first round of uh, municipal elections in Paris um, where Anne Hidalgo is running for her second term. And she's like very famous for her green agenda here. Um, but it's like almost as if the the two things coincided a bit. Like we had this um, one kilometer radius of how far we could move from our home. And it kind of seemed very similar to the... Um, to the 15-minute uh, radius of uh, the hyper-proximity loop that Annie Hidalgo and her team is advocating for, that you have sort of all of your amenities very close to home and you shouldn't be able to move very far to get what you need. So I think that there are some similarities, and especially with the lockdown, um, that, that could maybe be co-opted by this agenda. But yeah, also, I mean, the, the bike lines that have been implemented and and also seeing how some of the new public spaces in Paris, like um, around Bastille and Republique have been used because all of the old Parisian parks have been locked. And uh, so all of these like new spaces that have been made more like accessible and more like smooth in a way have been very good um, in, for people who have wanted to assemble anyways. Um Yeah, I think it's very early, and I'm I'm like worried to make any generalizations or like far-reaching uh, conclusions. But uh, may it's, I mean I mean it's interesting that uh, that uh, Real's office they released recently a, a kind of report on on public spaces, and it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting how you know the same analytical toolbox is used to evaluate kind of, uh, uh, you know, what, what's going on uh, and, you know, this kind of rather uh, simple, simplistic um, uh, illustrations like before and, and, and after, for example, uh, you know, shifts from uh, cafe seating to bench seating and this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, then, uh, uh, and then the report, uh, you know, provides a series of snapshots Uh, with observations such as uh, less people using public transport or that movements from A to B have decreased significantly or that the city is being used more for recreation, play and exercise. So these are some quotes from, from the report. And then, and then like, uh, it, it makes me think uh, what... Uh, like This is all very sensible and, and even obvious But it kind of leads me to think, and, and, and in, in that sense, it's useful to, to, to look at Dell and, to the, and, and this, this style of thinking or this style of urbanism, not, not uh, to obsessively focus on the single persona or on the single office, but, but, but because it is symptomatic or 
or it illustrates, uh, uh, you know, at the broader tendencies, which is exactly like what do we if we say that, uh, you know, that the movements from A to B have decreased. So then, what about delivery workers, right? Who, you know, uh, really have become essential, uh, and uh, who move only from A to B to C to D and so on, right? Uh, and then, uh, and in a sense, uh, you know, Jan Dell's first book is called, uh, or is titled uh, Life Between Buildings, which, which I thought is especially ironic uh, now, uh, given, that, uh, uh, given that it doesn't ask the question, what about life inside buildings, right? And I think the idea that public space is space be- uh, is space between buildings. I think uh, it's it's uh, extremely simplistic. So exactly the question is, what about the public space also inside buildings, right? And then especially now that that so much labor, uh, so much of our labor has. Uh, moved inside and 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 online. So these are just like some thoughts on on the, you know uh, uh, on on challenges and 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 limits to um, to deliverability. And of course, then you have like other you know uh, developments and uh, going on. Uh, uh, you know there was a. I don't know if you know, there was an, uh, an artist from Toronto who created the social distancing machine uh, uh, as a kind of contraption uh, um, that uh, uh, he put on his body uh, um, and, and walked uh, uh, downtown uh, and, and proving that, uh, that the sidewalks are narrow, right? Um, and I thought, uh, so like, on the one hand, you know, uh, this kind of illustrates the idea, like, how um, how now the the kind of uh, uh, you know this, the safety uh, uh, is uh, used as a tool to further livability agenda, uh, but then uh, uh, questions of um, uh, questions of uh, of democracy, inclusion, and exclusion seem to be uh, not very much present in in this um, in this debate, and and we can even see how, uh, for example, Richard Florida is also uh, recently participated in in the, in the debate, and it's quite interesting how he uh, this is from a this is from a short opinion piece in in foreign policy. But he writes that uh, so, so it's a kind of reflection on the on on the real estate crisis or on the um, on yeah on, on, on the kind of impact on real estate of 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 COVID and uh, and it's interesting how he basically uh, sees the um, this real estate crisis as, as kind of yet another opportunity for. Uh, for the uh, for the creative city or for creative classes to move in uh, back downtown, and uh, it's just I just want to quote this one sentence where he says that the crisis may provide a short window for our 
unaffordable hyper-gentrified cities to reset and to re-energize their creative scenes. So perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps uh, in the end, uh, it's it's uh, you know the idea of creative cities is is then uh, being uh, put on on the table by uh, by Florida and in in in, in a kind of, uh, especially ironic uh, context. You already mentioned uh, democracy and inclusion, and I think the current wave of protests in the United States that's now resonating in other parts of the world as well, um, exposes uh, and both fights the uh, structural and systemic racism and this, this, this issue of inclusive cities. And so besides issues of police brutality, um, mm. they have also put the relationship between race and space on the agenda, um, if we look at livability, how how does the idea of public space relate to to race here? Um, what are the effects of livable urban design in view of racial relations or racialized inequities? I mean, again, I'm I wouldn't like to you know to uh, extend uh, or like speculate really about the links between livability and 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 these ongoing. Uh, Protests against police brutality. I, I'm afraid it might be too simplistic, but 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 if you allow, I, I can uh, you know just just reflect on on the on the kind of idea of like who is the subject of livability, and I think that's that's precisely the contradiction of the livability because because on the face of it, you know, livability is, is about everyone, right? Uh, and and that's that's the meaning of the term, right? Cities for people, eh? so like for all people but i think uh, really what what is missing what has been missing from the debate and this this is how i think it needs to be opened up right rather than criticizing the particular solutions by saying that for example we don't want uh, we don't want bike lanes which would be ridiculous uh, it is i think important to uh, to to highlight so who who is the subject of of livability right and in that sense by as uh, subject i and i think we can look at it both in the kind of neo-Marxian sense and then in in the kind of Foucauldian sense. Uh, so I I mean highlighting uh, uh, highlighting structures of inclusion and exclusion along uh, along class, along race, gender, ethnic uh, identity, and so and so on. Right. So so it's about who uh, you know and sort of about public space and 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 the livable and vibrant public space. So like how it is vibrant and how it is livable, right? Uh, can like who can afford to buy a cappuccino or a flat white for five uh, and pay five uh, five euro, for example? Uh, but also like kind of modes of behavior, right? Uh, 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 or or kind of habitus habituses of, of of people who are in who are out. So who is uh, um, invited? Who is uh, who is kind of not not invited? And what kinds of of and soft and and violent methods, uh, you know, uh, are structuring um, that public space. So this is maybe something that these ongoing protests kind of uh, uh, speak to. And but then finally, also these kind of explicit regulations and rules about a kind of quasi-public space, such as the the famous or the infamous uh, 
uh, high line in, in New York, right? Which when you uh, when you when you want to uh, walk up, uh, there's a list of uh, I don't remember 15 or 20 20 rules that um, uh, that uh, instruct you and tell you what to do and what not to do, right? And can you uh, give us a f few examples of of these rules that exist on the high line just to to get oh, a sense? Yep. So, for example. It says that the park rules prohibit picking flower plants, throwing objects, bicycles, uh, amplified sound, solicitation, littering, um, drinking alcohol. And this is this one is especially important uh, in um, you know speaking to uh, democracy and protest. So uh, these park rules prohibit events. This is a quote: events. Or, or gatherings greater than 20 persons, except by permit. Yep, so then the second thought was how we can use the kind of Claudian idea of, uh, of subject or subjectification in, uh, to understand what's going on with the, the livable city movement. And by that, uh, and this then draws on, uh, on the essay uh, I published with with Leonard Ma, it's entitled Homo Cappuccino, uh, where uh, we uh, elaborate the the idea of um, uh, uh, the idea that that the, that the users of, of these livable public spaces are can be thought of as as sort of prosumers. So, uh, so there's this term in consumption studies that. Uh, so it's not about consumers, but 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 about prosumers, as as a as a, as a consumers who produce value by consuming, and uh, and and I think this is this is very much what's going on in in many of these vibrant spaces, such as again the High Line, but like uh, many of these uh, actually public spaces that that the Angel's office has worked on, where the. But it's precisely by uh, and 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 just just to take the, the example that that the Andel himself uses that by by sipping cappuccino for two hours you know outside and just enjoying uh, enjoying the atmosphere uh, together with uh, with a crowd of other people who are doing the same uh, you are participating in um, creating uh, a, a kind of environment a kind of atmosphere a kind of affective. Uh, Kind of affective uh, situation, uh, which is precisely uh, what what creates uh, which, is, which is something that that then gets translated into real estate values of uh, surrounding properties, right? And of course, this this again like uh, it's it's I mean the, the, the second subject. The second point is in in three trouble from the first one, right? Because it's only certain people that uh, you know, and, and certain kinds of behavior that create value. But while while other other kinds of uh, behavior uh, would not create that that value, which is precisely how these two. And I think this is is very interesting here to think, you know, kind of marks and footnotes and and uh, and and the kind of. Uh, critical uh, other critical theories together, uh, uh, mm, and uh, and maybe one more uh, like the final point is 
that and this is something that is obviously uh, that I think needs to be um, addressed when we talk about uh, about livability, which is exactly what is this value and who who captures these who captures these values, right? Uh, which is which is, and I think this is uh, is a clear reason why uh, private developers are very much interested now in um, in investing in public spaces, right? So, and and in that sense, so we have we have like kind of very violent forms of gentrification and 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 dispossession going on hand in hand with the kind of uh, like more softer versions where. Where the public space is a kind of part of the gentrification machine, uh, so to speak, right? Uh, and so it's not about you know maximizing square meters, but it's actually about creating this vibrant uh, atmospheres, which are part of the kind of value like value production chain, if I can put it like that. And and in that sense, we uh, and 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 people who are using these spaces, and the whole logic behind who structures, who is who can or who is invited and who is not invited to that space, is 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 a kind of is intrinsic to how how these mechanisms operate in a way. If that makes sense. Yeah, excellent. Uh, thank you, Nina. Do you want to add something? If you look at public space um, in Gail's work, it's very much this like, yeah, I know, like general space of public assembly. Like he he writes, it's a place for people to meet face to face, and that this interaction is very important. And then, I mean, when he is assessing a space, or when the Gail office is assessing a space, um, the individuals on this space are like these small black dots that are sort of put down on paper on where they're standing. So yeah, in that sense, it's on the surface, it seems very universal, that it's like, it's everyone that moves that um, are recorded onto this like clipboard paper. So there's no hierarchy in who is using the space when you're using this method of assessing it. But as Ma says, then there's this other layer to it. Yeah, but I think I mean uh, yeah I, mean, I think this is a really good point, but and it, it kind of extends also the the way in which Adele uh, talks about uh, like, like he doesn't talk about like classes or 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 um, no. you know like like the differences within society, uh, uh, you know other than this kind of demo- demographic differences obviously, but uh, and, and he's using often this term homo sapiens even like so he talks about yeah. homo sapiens as a, as a kind of client of the cities which which is a particularly crude uh crude form of speciesism right um so i thought that, yeah that's that it's quite interesting um, and it i think it really speaks to also this method where you just use black dots to uh yeah which is a kind of universalizing but it's but i think it's not really uh, equalizing or democratic in that sense and it potentially overlaps with some of the, you know, kind of current tendencies of this, like uh, urban informatics, you know, where where you use different, like, uh, cellular automata models 
uh, uh, so, you know, such as the work of Michael Batty at, at Bartlett, you know, who, who basically uh, you can like see these understood as, as a kind of a behavioral machine, and and the task of urbanists is to is to kind of optimize and and kind of uh, uh, kind of kind of model uh, how cities behave in a way disregarding uh, like disregarding kind of uh, uh, like production disregarding uh, like mode of production disregarding power and inequality you know just basically translating everything in a kind of flows and 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 um, and be and, and like kind of behavioral patterns right uh, and I think these you know these models have been actually used in uh, in very controversial practices such as like uh, bread poll you know like predictive policing uh, where it's not about like understanding but it's just about like observing these patterns and and it's kind of like kind of informing police where to strike or where to police so um I'm I'm strained a bit from the topic, but I ju just to to illustrate these uh, potentially uh, um, potentially problematic extension of that of that kind of methodology. So I guess the practice of protest would not really count as an optimized uh, feature of the city as a behavioral machine. Um, so. I'd like you to elaborate uh, mm. a bit uh, explicitly on this idea of um, public space as an arena for protest and uh, mm. in the bullet points that you mentioned earlier, um, it was about protection and uh, comfort and uh, pleasure, but I didn't get a sense of A public space here understood as an arena of democratic deliberation and also as a site of protest. Um, did this fall out of the view of Jan Gale or what, what happened here? Uh, no, not, not, not at all. Like, I mean, um, Maros and I found, I mean, maybe in the, in the early, like the later work, it's, it's not so present, but we found this diagram from 68 where Uh, where protesting is like equal to a man having a sandwich. And there we have this, the same kind of like non-hierarchical use of public space. But there was seen as like this need to manifest yourself or need to be heard uh, on the same line as needing to, to sit in the, in the shade. But it's, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Exactly. I was I also thought about this diagram. Uh yeah, I think the point is that it's there, but the, but the, but the, what is like what troubles me is is like that how it is there that is kind of considered on par with with having the sandwich or sipping coffee in a way that, that the protesting itself is seen as a kind of uh as a you know just like one form of uh, uh like individual expression among many others like um and 
it's it's irrelevant what is like what's the purpose or what drives this protest uh, whether it's like uh whether it's uh, uh you know like a, a protest for uh for uh, equality or protest against austerity or protest against police brutality or whether it's uh, uh whether it's it's like a like a you know like right wing uh, extremist protest so uh you know in a sense it's just like within within this like framework it just doesn't matter and i think this is really like deeply worrying Thank you very much, uh, Nina and Maros. We covered a lot of ground and uh, I truly appreciate your engagements today. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.